Welcome to the Startup Help Desk. We are here to answer your questions about building businesses, selling businesses, growth, the mini of life, and the pursuit of happiness. Your hosts here are famous, famous founders, executives, and CEOs who have built businesses, sold businesses, invested in businesses, and made every mistake in the book. And we are here to share our life lessons with you to make sure you don't make those same mistakes. My name is Sean Burns. I've been a founder for about 20 years now, starting companies like Flurry and Outlier.ai. I have coached hundreds of CEOs. I do investing. I also wrote a, a newsletter these days called The Breaking Point, anything I can do to share my hard lessons with you. I am joined today by Nick and Ash. Hey, this is Nick. I am co-founder and CEO of a company called Rev. We build tools that help people learn innovation skills and start companies. This is my second tour of duty. My first startup was in the crypto world. I'm so excited to be here and help support startups on their startup journey. Also, I never turned down a chance to learn from the great ones. And so, Sean and Ash, thank you both for having me. Hi, everyone. My name's Ash Rust. I am a pre-seed B2B investor based in San Francisco. I invest in the US, UK, and Canada through my fund, Sterling Road. I've also worked at other funds where I like Trinity Ventures, where I was an entrepreneur in residence, and Bullpen Capital, where I was an advisor. Before investing, I was an entrepreneur myself, so I've been an early employee at a social media analysis company, Clout, as well as the co-founder and CEO of SendUp. These days, I spend all my time coaching founders, so I've helped more than a 1,000 startups over the years. And basically, between myself, Nick, and Ash, we have coached everyone. It's just everyone has heard of us. That's why I said we were famous at the beginning. And by everyone, I mean my brother, my dad, and the guy that lives on the street. So we got every base covered here on the Startup Help Desk. It's a great crew. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> we have a lot of questions answered today. And by the way, all the questions we answer here in the Startup Help Desk were submitted by people just like you. So if you have a question you want us to answer in a future episode, just jump over, find us on Twitter. It's the Startup HD, the Startup HD, or on our website, thestartuphelpdesk.com. Now, here's our first question up, guys. And this is one I get a lot. I don't know about y'all, but how do you get feedback from investors? They don't seem to want to share detailed feedback, but we spend a lot of time with them. The feedback from investors would be great. How do we get good feedback when we present to investors, even if they pass and say no? Ash, you're the investor among us. I got to hand it off to you first. What do you think? Well, I don't have any good news, folks. I'm really sorry. I honestly don't like providing feedback to people uh, when I'm passing, and um, I'm not alone in that. Most investors are going to be really hesitant to provide the feedback because a lot of the time, you know, founders don't accept it. Maybe they want to debate that, and sometimes people get pretty hostile with you as well. So um, if you do get feedback notes from investors, uh, I, for example, usually give them over the phone, then you should treat those um, as you know, a kind of a gift. But crucially, you believe the no, but not the why. So only if that feedback is repeated over and over again by multiple investors, is it really valuable? Because again, most investors don't like providing real feedback. So they may just be giving you something quick and easy to say, rather than the actual real bad news. Um, I provide a website link with my most common feedback for people that usually satisfies people. But again, you just don't want to spend more time getting into it with somebody that you're not going to end up investing in. Um, and you, if you try and be polite with the feedback, it can still inspire you know, strong responses. 
the best place to get feedback as a founder from investors is usually some kind of safe space that's been created by maybe a third party. So the investor knows they're only supposed to be providing feedback. Maybe it's a group setting like a pitch practice or some accelerators provide mentor or events programs where you might get that. Uh, but it's not easy and you honestly shouldn't expect the investment community to give you much feedback. I'm sorry. That's spot on. Well, per Ash's point, don't expect feedback from an investor. Uh, ultimately, if they reject your pitch, that is a data point, but not something that you want them to go deeper on. Truthfully, the kind of feedback you want is feedback from customers and users. If they keep signing up for more of your offering, that's the kind of feedback you want. If they are saying no, that's other forms of feedback. So seek feedback from customers and users. That being said, when it comes to your investor interactions, you can be strategic about understanding an investor's process. And so instead of asking for feedback or asking what they think, instead, I like to default to these three questions during your investor journey. Question one, what's your typical process to analyze the deal? So you want to understand how the investor will evaluate uh, this opportunity. Question two, what's the next step? This helps drive some momentum and helps manage your expectations in terms of what's next. And then question three, and this is where you could perhaps get some gem of a feedback, is what about our pitch would prevent us from getting to this next stage? That will give the investor a chance to set expectations and give you some insights into feedback on that process. I'll stop there though. Sean, Ash, what do you think about that framework? Well, won't you end up just getting a bunch of feedback on the pitch though? Is that with that? That's what I worry about with that last question. It's so tricky, right? This The whole thought around that last question is to not necessarily open the door for an abundance of feedback, but have it be so laser specific to that next step. So if the next step is to join them for a partner meeting, then at least you can be able to get something a little bit more objective in terms of what could be a blocker from getting you there. Well, let, let's play a little game quickly with Ash, since you're an investor, Ash. I'm going to tell you a bunch of pieces of very standard feedback that founders get, and you can translate for us from what the investors are saying to act what they actually mean, okay? First up, you're not at the right stage for us right now. We want to see you be a little bit farther along. So that means they're definitely not interested right now. Uh, it may mean that you are... Uh, you don't have the kind of growth or traction that they're excited about ordinarily, or that the team doesn't have the kind of resume strength that would uh, um, push them to invest at an earlier stage, like where you are right now. Sounds good. Second one, this market just doesn't seem big enough. So a lot of VCs have big fat funds, and those big fat funds need enormous outcomes. So they need companies to go from maybe a 20 or $30 million valuation up to a 10 or 20 or even $30 billion valuation for them to return their money. So if you're operating in a market that's less than $5 billion right now, then it's going to be very hard for that VC from a traditional fund that used to be on Sand Hill Road, probably on South Park now in San Francisco, it's going to be very hard for them to invest in you and hope that you're going to be that big win for them like Uber uh, or DoorDash or something similar. Excellent. And third piece of feedback, founders here all the time. Listen, you really have to wear pants in our office if you're going to pitch us. So I think that's horses for courses. <laughs> you know, obviously, with the advent of the... Why aren't you taking this seriously? Um, obviously, with the advent of the remote workplace, there's no need for any kind of 
uh, trouser-based discrimination. And I, you know, obviously this kind of stuff dates back to the <laughs> world with Rome versus Gaul. But I think that as a society, we're ready to move on. And, you know, given that we've got this kind of newsroom setting now, uh, hopefully anyone that needs to feel either fleecy freedom or go, you know, uh, tunic uh, to kilt, they can. <laughs> This is how you know Ash is the best among us, is that he can stay entirely on point and very serious when I throw out absolutely ludicrous jokes like that one right there. Uh, but we're very serious about giving you answers to questions, despite all of the appearances to the alternative. So let's keep moving through our question queue. Nick, what is next up on our question queue for today? All right, let's get into it. What challenges are caused by having too many people on a cap table? And so to give a little more context, just some supporting details here, is there any compelling reason why one should roll angels onto an SPV, so a special purpose vehicle, rather than having 20 checks of $10,000 as separate lines on the cap table? Oh, man, this would be, Ash, this would be good for you and I to go back on because I think we might have some disagreements on this. So first off, I'll say everyone you let invest in your company, everyone that's on your cap table has a very big impact on the arc of your business. I don't care how much they invest because what people don't realize is that if you want to, for example, sell your company, typically acquirers require 99.9% .9 of all shareholders to approve. So somebody who owns a little bit of a part of the company still has to approve of the acquisition for it to go through, which gives them an enormous amount of leverage and I have seen horrible situations where a very minor shareholder holds an entire company hostage for a financing, for an acquisition. So be really, really careful about who you let on your cap table. And frankly, the fewer people you have, the better, because the more investors you have, the less likely it is you can trust all of them. The second thing I'll say is that, you know, the reality is there's lots of ways to let people invest today. SPVs are a popular one because you roll up a bunch of smaller investors into one light item on your cap table. It depends on what you're looking for. They are, in theory, better for you as a founder just for legal management. I can tell you a lot of investors, including myself, I don't invest in companies through SPVs. Partly it's because of the tax treatment and the legal structure of them, but partly because every time I did that in the past, you're treated like a second-class citizen. You don't get updates from the founders. They don't look to you for help. You don't feel involved in the company process. And frankly, a lot of us that invest in the early stages, we do it because we want to help. I don't want to just throw money and be treated like a second-class citizen. So you have to think a bit about the product you're selling, which is your company, and how you're selling it, which is do people invest in a safe? Do they invest in equity? Do they invest in SPV? There is a point long term where there are SEC limits on how many shareholders you can have, but that is absolutely not something to worry about because by the time you get that big, you have all sorts of other ways to solve the problem. So really, it's personal preference. I recommend having fewer investors as possible to just make sure you can trust them all. And honestly, SVVs make your life a little bit easier, but they add a lot of complexity and filter out some good investors. So I personally don't recommend them. What do you think, Ash? What's the deal on how many investors, how to do it, SPVs, all that kind of good jazz? Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree. But so Sean is right in the sense that there are, it's amazing how much one individual investor can, uh, how much damage they can do, how much drama they can cause if you don't monitor them correctly. So a safe doesn't give anybody any kind of rights on your company. Uh, but if you're not careful when you do a price drown and you don't have 
good, clean terms, especially around the drag-along in the documents, it's called. So this drag-along right means that when a, a certain critical mass of investors come into a company and agree, then um, then they can pull all the other investors along in that agreement. So if you don't have that, if it's not well-written, then that can cause all kinds of problems. But obviously, get a good lawyer, that won't be a problem. On the other side of this, you know, a lot of the time, you may not have a choice, right? Like if you've got an investor like Sean, who might be your second or third check-in, and he's going to be an advisor to you, he's going to introduce you to a bunch of other people. If he says, I don't want to do an SPV, well, guess what? You're not doing an SPV. But if you're in a position of, of very different strength, for example, like it's Y Combinator Demo Day as we're recording this uh, right now in September 2022, a lot of the teams going into that kind of situation are going to have a lot of angel investors who want to write 10 to 25K checks, and they can easily push them into that SPV because demand is high. They don't care if one or two of them say no. So uh, SPVs are great, as uh, Sean mentioned, because of things like the ease of management uh, and making sure you've got, uh, you know, kind of everybody wrapped up into one line on the cap table without suffering from uh, the risk of uh, needing them to sign every piece of documentation. The other thing just to note, though, as well, is sometimes when you end up being in a position of strength and having a lot of interest in your round and you don't want to take a lot of small investors, this idea of being concentrated, maybe having just two or three investors in your seed round can also go wrong. I've seen it a few times where people maybe just have a lead and maybe one or two of the lead's friends and no one else. And if that relationship with the lead doesn't work out, well, then you are by yourself. And having you know those 10 or 15 other angels was actually going to be really valuable for you. They were going to be mentors. They were going to provide you with introductions to other investors who were going to help at later stages. Um, and then the last thing I'll just say is, you know, actually, for mo- the most part, while angel investors talk a big game, you know, it's unfortunate, but the reality is for most angel investors, they're not professional investors. They're not doing it full time. They can't give you a ton of help because they got another job. So they kind of have to accept being treated as second class citizens in a lot of cases, especially when there's demand. Ranto. So Ash, maybe we can at least agree that your ideal number of investors is more than one and less than 100. Is that a fair... Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I had 35 in my seed round, and that was considered a lot back in 2012. Uh, I would say that, you know, maybe at least 15 to 20 would be the ideal number. So you've got uh, a core lead who is ideally a specialist, uh, but then you've also got lots of people who maybe have expertise and who are small checks who can be helpful uh, throughout the journey, maybe in different situations or if things don't go well with your initial choice of mentors on the cap table. Yeah, I will agree with that. One quick note about drag-along rights. So keep in mind, even legal terms like drag-along rights don't solve all your problems. I have personally, forget about investors, I've had cases where I'm, I'm going through an acquisition, I'm selling my company, and some of our customers sue us because they want us to give us some portion of the proceeds because they know that if you have a lawsuit pending, it's considered to be a, it can be considered to be a material liability and it can submarine the acquisition. So even if someone signed a drag along right and they decide they want a big chunk of your acquisition and they file a lawsuit, sometimes you have to do whatever it takes to make that go away to even close the deal. So just be careful out there. Work with people you trust. Honestly, trust is the biggest thing. And if somebody wants to be a bad actor, the minute they're involved in your company, they'll find a way. It's almost magical how that happens. 
Well, let's go on to some more happier notes. We have time for one more question here. And by the way, I've been excited about how many questions we've gotten through the website. It's thestartuphelpdesk.com, Twitter, thestartuphd. Ash, what's up last on our our question queue for today? Yeah, so I think first of all, before I say this question, I'm pretty upset that I've not been chosen to answer it. So again, just registering the discrimination that goes on uh, in this podcast. There's still time, still time for you to get in on this it's answer. The pants, Ash. If you wore pants on the podcast, we would do that. You guys are going to give the poor listening public wrong answers, and then I'm going to have to clean it up rather than just picking me for these kinds of questions, and then we can get it right first time. Anywho, so um, the question, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Should you charge your first customer? And if so, how do you convince them to pay? Should you charge your first customer? And how do you convince them to pay? This is such a good question and is open for a lot of debate. So Ash, I'm sure you're going to work your way into the mix on this one. This is the kind of question that we hear over and over again. And it is the kind of thing that will keep you up at night. When it comes to customer one, I like to boil it down to what's the essence of value you're trying to achieve with them? Ultimately, in my opinion, it's more important to figure out if your product is solving their problem, and it's more important to collect proof. And so proof can come through testimonials, case studies, and other evidence that you're solving their problem. So prioritize for that. Considering that you want to prioritize for that, I believe you still should try to charge your first customer. And big emphasis on try here. You can price it similar to existing products if you operate in a market where you've got some analog examples. Uh, You can also see if you can understand the purchaser's decision-making process and see if they need to get any approvals to purchase your software. And in doing so, price it low enough where it's easy to get set approval. The big picture thing here is try to charge them. You start exercising that muscle and you may be able to get them to say yes. Of course, if they say no, you still enthusiastically say, sounds good. Let's get started. Sean, what's your take on this? Well, well, first, let's separate you know consumer products from enterprise products. If you're launching a new consumer app, you absolutely should not charge people. You should go for reaching as many people as you can early on. If you're selling an enterprise product or product to companies, everything Nick said is spot on. I will I will frame it a little bit differently though. I'll say that I think that startup companies exist solely because of the altruism of their first customers. That those first customers that are going to use your product and pay you are doing so out of the goodness of their heart because honestly, first products are usually pretty bad. They're paying you probably more than it might be worth, but a lot of those early customers will do that and that's fantastic. Now, I actually also will take take a note with part of the question about how do you convince them to pay? There's like two stages in the early parts of the business. There's the part where people are going to use your product and not pay you because it's so bad and you just need to figure out how to get it to work in the first place. And then there's a stage where they start paying you. It shouldn't be hard to convince them to pay you. They should want to pay you if there's value there. They might not be very much. Like your first customers, let's say you want to sell it for $100,000 a year. Your first customers may pay you $1,000 a month. But if there's value there, it shouldn't be that hard to convince them to pay you. That isn't. I would actually say if you have to spend a lot of time convincing them to pay you, that signal that you haven't found that right formula of value yet. You haven't really figured out what they want. They may not, again, pay you a lot. They're your first customers. You're early. But it shouldn't be that hard to convince them to pay. And that's really the indication that you found something. Not that somebody will use it. Although Nick's right. Getting people to use it, that's step one. But when people when you start charging, 
that's when you really get feedback. People will always give you positive feedback, say nice things. But once you ask them to actually take out their budget and give you some money, then you're really going to get some feedback and it should be pretty clear. But Ash, I gotta, I'm got going to give some of my time here to Ash because he had a lot of thoughts on this. Ash, what did Nick and I get wrong? Finally. Okay. So this is very simple, folks. B2C, B2B. Oh, and now we're out of time. Too, uh, too bad. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Right. This is like Apocrypha in the Bible. Uh, all right. So um, very simple. B2C and B2B and enterprise do not charge for the first customer. It's okay. It's only one person and we just need feedback. We need to know it works. It's going to break in all kinds of weird and stupid ways in those first iterations. So it doesn't even matter if they're the right profile. Just get someone on it. Customers two through five, two through, five, two through ten, then we can start talking about them being the right customer profile, paying money, all that kind of stuff. But please don't try and ask someone uh, for money on your first version. If you are seriously thinking about doing that, you've waited way too long to ship something. Is there any value to, so when it comes to your initial sales, customer one through five, often there's going to be some labor that's going to go into it in terms of you, of course, providing that customer success experience and providing perhaps some consulting to help them understand how to use the tool and helping them get a great experience with that. Of course, you want to provide that no matter what. Is there any value to pricing that in to that first package or per Ash's point, don't charge anything, just get started and give them a delightful experience? You can kick them off. (laughs) They don't pay later. Like As soon as they ask for anything else other than the crappy V1 that you shipped to them, like as Sean said, which is, you know, basically, you know, uh, for the trash, realistically. So if as long as they ask for anything more, then you've got the opportunity to ask them to pay. They're not going to stick around on that crap plan for 12 months. And I think that's a really important point, which is that people are worried that once you start asking for money, people start paying you, you're stuck with that customer forever. And that's absolutely not true. In fact, one of the most important things you can do is fire customers. And many companies are far too hesitant to do this. Let's say you start selling the product, you have three or four paying customers, but it turns out that your target market, you learn a lot and the target market is somewhere else. And these customers that are paying you aren't representative of who you want to sell to. Their needs are different. You can fire them. You can cancel their contracts. You can thank them for their effort. And you absolutely should do that because if you don't, if your belief is that everybody who pays you has a right to be a customer forever, my God, you'll be weighed down by these decisions you made forever. It'll slow you down. So just because someone paying you doesn't mean they have the right to use your product forever. You should and absolutely fire customers as necessary as you're growing across the course of the business. I'll say, Ash, I agree with everything you said. I almost feel like we're all in violent agreement. I don't feel like there's a lot of debate here about what to do. I guess in a future episode, we can debate how much you should charge them and how you decide how much to charge them. Zero. You charge like them zero, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let them equivocate. They're trying to say that we're breaking up. Ash, you're breaking up. I, I think Ash was just saying that I'm always right. He's Mark respectful. Twice if you're in Milwaukee. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, with that, guys, we're out of time. As always, brilliant answers. Thank you very much. All of you out there, if you have questions, we would love to answer them in a future episode. Please find us on Twitter. It's at the Startup HD. 
and find us online. Our website is thestartuphelpdesk.com. All these questions were submitted by you and in future episodes, the questions will also be submitted by you. So why not head over there right now and submit some questions we can cover in future episodes. As always, Nick and Ash, it's been a pleasure. Thank you all. Great time. I'm still trying to get my pulse under 150. (laughs) (laughs) The Startup Help Desk is now closed, but it will open again and we'll see you back here next time.